Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church today. Beautiful day, at least for a Rhode Islander. Some of you may be a little chilly, but that's part of, I guess, being in January. All right, let's begin today by praying. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that you gave him to us, that he died for us, was buried, and on the third day raised again for us. And we thank you, Father, that it's so simple for anybody to become born again, to spend eternity with you. It's simply a matter of believing that good news. Father, today we want to continue to pray for the Merchberger family as they're grieving the loss of Tom. We pray, too, Father, for anybody in our congregation who is suffering in any way, bodily, in their heart, their soul, their spirit. We pray, Father, also that today we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we also, Father, want to pray for those who are in other countries, for those who are being persecuted today, that they may know that we love them and that we will do what we can to help them and we think about them. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Hello again, everyone. We got the we got the A team here this morning. I say that I don't want to be wondering anything, but you know we had a funeral or memorial service yesterday. The place was packed. Um, today we have the A team. You know what I'm saying? People, you people are dedicated to God's word. You're dedicated to the Lord. You face different things, and yet you're here today. And I just want to thank you for that and acknowledge you, all of you. All righty, just today a couple of announcements. Pastor Kingsley is our uh, missionary of the month. We've been praying for him. This year he's planning to go to Nigeria, Zambia, and South Florida. Not necessarily in that order. Please continue to keep our youth group in prayer, the youth ministry. We have uh, a ministry to Deerfield Beach Middle School where there's a club that meets after school, a Christian club. We're also starting up a youth group Every Wednesday at 6.30, if you know any young people, young families, or anybody who's feeling young, I guess, um, tell them about it. Wednesday, 6.30. Keep that in prayer. Again, we have Bibles in the back. If anybody needs one, we're about to go into the preaching of the Word of God this morning. So just raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. Title of today's message comes from 1 Corinthians 14. I know that's a big surprise, but... That's where we are today. We're going to go from verses 13 to 19, um, and we'll pick that up right now. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, as we assemble together to worship the Lord, I might add, Paul writes, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right, here's where we pick things up today. I want you to keep in mind once again, that chapter 14 is primarily about the gift of tongues and its limitations. Gift of tongues and its limitations. Remember, tongues were the big deal for the Corinthians at the time, especially those who had been gifted by the Spirit with this manifestation. But their assessment that that was the greatest gift was flawed. They magnified the gift of tongues totally out of proportion to all the other gifts. They needed a haircut. You know what that means. They needed to be brought down to proper balance. They needed to get the smoke out of their head. That is an expression for arrogance. 
And Paul makes it clear, you've seen that, that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. He says that outright. Why? Because others are built up when you prophesy. Prophecy, remember, was a temporary gift before the New Testament epistles were finished. And yet that was, that was the way that people were built up before they had the complete scriptures. And so that's why it's more important. That's why it's greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Somebody who speaks in tongues, that was great for them. They were built up. They had an experience of the Spirit working in them. But nobody else did, unless there was an interpreter. One who prophesied, remember, built up the whole church. One person bringing forth God's word, everybody's edified. It's in their language. It's in understandable terms, hopefully. As I've mentioned a couple of times already, I do think that we pastors can learn something here to make sure that when we communicate God's word, it's in, a, it's in a form, it's in terms and language that you understand. I'm not up here trying to show you how smart I am or how stringing along the biggest possible word. No, it should be things that are said that are clear to the people that are, being, that are here to hear the word of God. Now, Paul doesn't have a problem with tongues, per se, here in the first century in the Corinthian church. After all, he states in verse 19 that he speaks in tongues more than anyone in the Corinthian church. So he didn't have a problem with tongues. What he had a problem with was uninterpreted tongues in public worship. People speak in tongues. We're all assembled to hear the word of God. Nobody knows what this person is talking about unless there is an interpreter. Ah, and then then people will know. You see, the interpreter speaks with the mind as the tongues person speaks with the spirit. And it's with the mind that we can communicate to one another. You know, you have, you have a guidance of the spirit. I'm sure you've all experienced that. It's hard to put into words sometimes. Well, the tongue speakers would express that in that language. Foreign language, understandable to some, but no one in the audience. Whereas prophecy now has moved into the mind as well. You have the spirit and then the mind. And the mind is what we use to communicate to one another and to ourselves, by the way. I don't know if you've had experience where you see that the spirit is moving you to do something or to say something or he's put a, a group of scriptures in your, in your heart and then you have to then, well, make it understandable so that I can act on it. Make it understandable to my mind so I can tell others about what I've learned, what I've seen when the spirit opened up my heart, my spirit actually. So again, he has a problem with uninterpreted tongues in public worship. In private, that's one thing. But if you're in public worship, he has a problem with tongues unless there's an interpreter. And as we'll see, we can can read between the lines here that there were a lot more tongue speakers than there were interpreters. Hmm. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue, verse 13 again, pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. But my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. When we sang this morning, uh, there's an uplifting from being together and singing God's word. There's something in our spirits that's moved. And yet, if we don't speak, sing in the language that we all understand, it's really not It's not meaningful. It's not understandable. So he says, I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Now, here in verse 13, it's saying, notice this, it's saying that some, if not all of the tongue speakers, didn't even understand what they were saying. Can you imagine that? They didn't understand what they were saying. That's why he says, pray that you may interpret Otherwise, you know, it's not meaningful to anybody else. And if we're being honest, we haven't really put it together ourselves yet. And that was the situation that most of the tongues, if not all of the tongue speakers, were in. As I mentioned before, it appears that there were many more tongue speakers than there were interpreters. We could put it another way. Too many chiefs and not enough Indians is another expression. Too many people taking center stage, but nobody explaining what they were up to to the people. Therefore, if there's no interpretation, they should be quiet. He's going to say this later on. Be quiet in the church because you're not building up anybody unless somebody can interpret that foreign language that you're speaking. 
However, in the church, in verse 19, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. I want, you to, I want to tell you something now. Tongues were a spoken language. After all, if they weren't a spoken language, a human language, how could they have been interpreted or translated into a language that the people understood? It had to consist of words and sentences and so forth. It had a vocabulary. The language that they were speaking when they spoke in a tongue had a vocabulary. However, the meaning of those words was not understood by anyone in the assembly, except those who had the gift of the interpretation of tongues. And verse 14 gets to the heart of it. When someone prayed in a tongue, their human spirit prayed. Oops, catch up. When someone prayed in a tongue, their own human spirit prayed. Make, Make no doubt about it. At that point in time, with that temporary gift, They were building up themselves when they were speaking in tongues. It was a matter of their human spirits. But their mind, their own mind, was not engaged. As a result, the speaker could not tell the hearers what the prayer was about. If he prays only in a tongue, he will be edified, but no one else will benefit. Now that might work when somebody's praying in private, but it certainly doesn't work during the worship service. Now what about this human spirit? Notice that he, 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 he differentiates the human spirit from the human mind. They're, they're different from one another, just like the human heart. All right? Those are three different things about us. They all work together. Okay. The human spirit, let's just talk a little about this again. It has a direct line to the Holy Spirit. After all, it was born of the Spirit. Jesus said, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit which means it has a direct line to the Holy Spirit. There's a direct connection there. And that's wonderful. I mean, it truly, truly is, when you think about it, that all the manifestations, all the gifts of the Spirit, are there because of a direct line between the Holy Spirit and our human spirits. No matter what your gift is, that's where it starts. But then it moves to the mind. In other words, you can have an experience, an insight, that you have a particular gift. Let's say it's the gift of administration or the gift of helps. But then you have to, as it were, translate that into your mind starting to say, now where could I best serve the congregation with this gift that the Spirit has convinced me I have? You need the Spirit and you need the truth. You need the Spirit and you need the mind. Human Spirit, direct line to the Holy Spirit. We know from the Bible that the Holy Spirit can move our human spirits. But they're often in groanings too deep for words as we read in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit can also speak mysteries to the human spirit. Think about that. Think mysteries, things that were revealed that you never knew about before. Okay? But here's the thing. Those mysteries remain exactly that. Not understood. Until the mind kicks in and puts those spiritual thoughts into spiritual words. So when Paul prays in his spirit, he also prays with his mind. So that spiritual thoughts become spiritual words, words that people can understand, that build up and encourage and console the rest of the congregation. In order to be profitable, prayer must involve both the human spirit and the human mind. After all, if you take the human spirit out of the picture, you know what you get? You get people who can read all the prayers and tell them to you, but it's not a part of their spirit. It's just their mind. That's no good either. You know, the church, he doesn't say, I want intellectuals only. He says, I want both to be at work, from your spirit first, then your mind also. They, have, they work hand in hand. The human spirit prayed in tongues. The human mind interprets it, expressing the prayer in words that could be understood by himself first and then others. So I want to make it clear that tongues was the legitimate spiritual gift for the Corinthian church at that time. I always want to add that so that you don't get the wrong idea. We're going to see next week when, you know, the Bible says tongues will cease. And the question is when? We're going to answer that next week. When did this gift of tongues cease? But in Paul's day, it was a legitimate spiritual gift for the Corinthians to have. However, the gift was designed to work hand in hand with the gift of interpretation. Why? We've been through this so that people can understand. Tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy. You see it? Tongues, when interpreted accurately, then becomes prophecy. 
You see, it was a spiritual gift temporary that was given, and there were, it was in a language, but it needed to be interpreted so that people could understand what the message was. So when you put those two together, tongues in the spirit, interpretation with the mind, you get prophecy or revelation at that time. Things were being revealed. Paul will talk about this in Ephesians and Colossians, that there were things never before understood or heard or known about until Christ was ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit was sent to do his work that he's doing among the church now. Okay. There are things that were mysteries revealed to Paul that had never been revealed before. And so when you think about it, Paul's letters will ultimately be where those mysteries are revealed in written form. That doesn't mean that the church didn't need them, because in order to know who you are as members of the body of Christ, you don't have to understand what's unique about the body. And that's what was revealed, things never revealed before, like Jesus is the head of the body and we're the body, you know, we're his body. That had never been revealed before. Christ in you and you in Christ. That had never been revealed before. Again, the Lord never said that to Moses or Abraham or Joshua or David, anybody, nobody in the Old Testament was ever said, you're in the Lord and the Lord is in you. You see, that's, a, that's something new that God brought about when his son had been resurrected and ascended into heaven and seated. And then the Holy Spirit came down to make a unique dispensation is the fancy word, a unique period, a unique body. Okay, now the, now, the, now the members that are worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth are also the body of Christ. And that had never been revealed before. So revelation, knowledge, and teaching also. And again, the, this gift was designed to work hand in hand with the, with the gift of interpretation, with my spirit and with my mind. All right, verses 15 to 17. What is the outcome then? What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks? I want you to imagine for a minute, I'll, I'll say this. Let us pray. Bonjour, comment allez-vous? What? What? You know, it's mysterious, it's cool, but if you don't know French, you have no idea what I just prayed. How can you say Amen. What if I'm a nutcase and I'm saying blasphemy as I'm saying it in a foreign language? Everybody, oh yeah, amen, right? That's what happens. You can't have a foreign language when you're praying with people, maybe with yourself, but not with people. You have to have something everybody understands so they can really agree with it and say amen. They've been built up by the prayer. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, we're going to see in a moment who that is, say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying. Oh, you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person isn't built up at all. Now, I want you to notice here in verses 15 to 17, Paul talks about three ways that tongues are used in worship. Notice that they're used in praying, were, let me say, they were, their tongues were used to pray, they were used to sing, and they were also used to give thanks. Okay, but again, without an interpreter, all right, you can pray, but nobody else knows what you're praying about. You can sing, but you sing it by yourself. You can give thanks, but they don't, if they don't understand what you're praying and saying, praising the Lord, giving thanks, they can't say amen because they don't know what you just said. So all of these need the gift of interpretation or else they're useless in the, in, the, in the congregation. When the congregation assembles, gathers for worship. That's the issue. In all three cases, Paul explains that both his human spirit, because he talks about himself, and his mind are engaged. See, he's pointing to himself now to say, hey, look at this. This is the proper way to do it. And this is how I'm doing it. I want you to do it. You know, that's what a teacher, or an apostle in this case, does. You see, they, they, show, they show it themselves, they live it themselves, and then they say, now I can become an example to you and how you should do it as well. Pray with your human spirit and with your mind. Pray with, sing with the spirit and sing with your mind as well. Give thanks to God with the spirit and with the mind as well. We ought to worship in spirit and in truth. 
And that's what, that's what Jesus said. He said a time when He was alive was coming, and now is. That those who worship the Father will worship them in spirit, the human spirit, and truth, the mind. What does that mean? It means that we are to have intelligent worship. Intelligent worship. I mean, this go, this, across the church, that's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, we're not supposed to be hooping and hollering. Nobody really knows why. Right? We're not supposed to be dancing in the aisles and not telling anybody why we're dancing or even to do that. It's supposed to be intelligent worship. It's supposed to be orderly. Paul will say this at the end of the chapter. It should be orderly. There should be a, a sense that you know what's going on at the different points in the worship service. You know when it's time to sing. You know when it's time to hear the word of God. You know when it's time to give thanks and so forth. All right? Orderly. Dignified. Thoughtful of others. See, these are things that the mind has to have understood and the the human spirit has explained and therefore you should do that. This should be the way in which we conduct our worship services. Orderly, intelligent, dignified, thoughtful of others, understandable, so that everybody can worship together. It's not a time to show yourself off, bring attention to yourself. We're all here to worship together. That's the key. And how do we do that? Realize that the human spirit and the mind are partners, especially in worship. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? In other words, I could get up here and speak Swahili and say, I give thanks that the, that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to beat the San Francisco 49ers. And then if I say that in a foreign language, and you're a 49ers fan, and you're saying, amen, you just said, I agree, I want the Kansas City Chiefs to win too. So, you know, you can't do that. Now, he says, you are giving thanks well enough, but the person is not edified. In other words... If you, if you don't have a clue with what they're saying, how can you agree with it? You see, and I want to point this out. In verse 16, when he says, the place of the ungifted, see that? The place of the ungifted. What that's talking about is anyone who doesn't have the gift of interpretation. When tongues are spoken, when, when you, somebody's praying in tongues, when somebody's giving thanks in tongues, anyone who doesn't have the gift of, of, of interpretation can't understand a thing, can't say amen to the prayer, I want you to think about that. That's everybody in the congregation, including the tongue speaker, except the interpreter. You see it? You're in the place of the ungifted. If there's no interpreter, how are you going to know what's being said? In in other words, most of the congregation is in the place of the ungifted. I know that's a little humbling. We want to think ourselves this way. A lot of of commentators and so forth want to say it was another kind of person that was less than everybody else or wasn't a believer or on the fringes. No, it's anyone who doesn't have the gift of interpretation is ungifted in that situation. In that place, they're ungifted. All right. So we're not we're not in that anymore. We don't have the gift. But if we did, most of us would be in the place of the ungifted unless there was an interpreter. Notice you say amen. What is amen? Amen is simply agreeing to what the prayer is indicating that you wholeheartedly agree with the content of the prayer. You, in fact, adopt it as your own. Amen means, I adopt as that my prayer that he just said or she just said. Now, if someone prays, but you don't have a clue what they're saying, how are you going to say amen at the end? How can you agree with the content of any speech when you don't know what the content is? I mean, it's that simple, right? It's kind of like, imagine you were signing a big contract. Right, a million-dollar contract, let's say. But it's in a foreign language, and no one has ever interpreted it for you. You don't have a clue what's in that contract, and yet you're saying, John F. Farley, I agree. I have no idea. It could say that I'm giving you a million dollars, and that's it. You can't have it back. doesn't matter what I do with it. John F. Farley, you know, because it's in a foreign language. That would be stupid. I'd be dumb if I did that. That's what he's saying. How can you agree with the content of anything when you don't know what the content is? I'm sure most of us have had that feeling, maybe in, in English class or any class, right, where we're taking the test, putting our name to it, but we didn't read the book, you know? 
We've all been, well, maybe you haven't. Maybe you guys are scholars, but I've been in that situation. I remember doing a term paper on, my gosh, what was the name of that book? Anyway, it was by Theodore Dreiser, right? Well, if you've ever read him, and I don't hope you haven't, he is the most lumbering, you know, going back and forth kind of writer there ever was. And I read the first chapter and I said, there's just no way I'm going to get through the rest of it. I'm just not going to do it. But I had to write a whole term paper on it. And so I had to get all kinds of other resources and so forth to help me along. So it's really hard to agree with content when you don't even know what it is. That's what he's saying here. Verse 17, you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Now, verse 17, I want you to look at um, verse 4. Hold your place in verse 17. I want you to go back to verse 4, because he says something earlier that connects with verse 17. Look at verse 4, 1 Corinthians 14, 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. You give thanks well enough, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. You see, if you're just speaking in tongues... The other person isn't built up. It's only when you prophesy that that happens. I'm going to keep repeating this. When we communicate to others, our speech is useless. If we don't use language, they can understand. When you think about it, in our own lives, that's true. We communicate to someone, but we're saying it in a way that they don't get it. They don't understand it at all. Have you ever had that experience where you know exactly what you're saying? And they may even nod their head, but they have no clue what you said. It's in, I was uh, yesterday... Um, at the memorial service um, for Tom, Tom Merchberger. And afterwards, I was with Mark and Brian Tapper. You know Brian. And they were talking shop for a little while. You know, they're in the music business. And they have all this lingo. I had no idea what they were saying. Right? Now, if I was nodding my head, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, they'd have to look at me and say, oh, so you've done some of this too. No, I haven't. I have no idea what you just said. But you're my buddy, so I'm going to nod. Yeah, yeah. That's what we're talking about. It's got to be understandable. Now, if you're going to speak in tongues or you're going to speak in a language that nobody else understands, just save your breath and be quiet. That's what he's going to say. Now, let's step back for a minute. This whole idea of words that are understandable. I want to bring it way, way up, all the way to God himself. Because you know what? God chose to reveal himself to us using words that we could understand. In other words, he stooped to our level to communicate to us. I'm quite sure there were many other ways he could have done that. And and in fact, there were times when he did, when he revealed himself at times in the Old Testament. It was not always in words. Sometimes it was the pillar of fire and the cloud and so forth. Sometimes there were visions like the prophets had. But ultimately, he made sure that he revealed himself to us in words that we could understand. God himself did that. didn't have to, but he did. Please turn to Ezekiel now, chapter 3, verse 4. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 4. Old Testament prophet, the last of the major prophets, they call it. The last big book before we get to shorter prophecy books. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 4. I'm going to give you a minute to go back there. It's after Jeremiah. Okay. John Jeremiah, you're close there. Lamentations, they were there, and then boom. Ezekiel. And we're at the beginning of Ezekiel, so you should be able to find it once you see the book. It's in chapter 3. Ezekiel 3, verse 4. And then, of course, there are those in the congregation, I don't know if there's anybody today who used their phone or a computer. They have an advantage over us at that point. Oh, yeah, there you go. Because they can just type it, Ezekiel, and then boom, it comes right up, you know. Us poor slobs that have the, the printed version, you know. I got I to gotta admit, though, I use the computer when I'm preparing because I'm going here, there, and everywhere. And, I, and also there's tools in the computer now. You can see the Greek and so forth. So the, the computer is great. But i got to tell you, we're together in the worship service. For me, communicating to you, I want to have the paper in front of me. It's just, maybe I'm just old, old-fashioned. All right, is everybody there? Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 4. Don't nod your heads with the amen if you're not there yet. <laughs> All right, good. Then he, the Lord, said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. He gave the prophet Ezekiel words that, he could, that Ezekiel understood and words that the house of Israel will understand. 
So what language do you think he was using at that point? Hebrew, exactly. That was words they could... Now, God, I'm sure, doesn't just speak Hebrew in heaven. Probably doesn't speak it at all. He doesn't need to. He has direct communing with the Trinity, right? With the God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. But when he came down to us, or the Old Testament, the Israelites, he spoke in that language, Hebrew. Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Verse 5, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech. Look at that. Or difficult language. You see that? If somebody came to us with an unintelligible speech or in difficult language, again, you know, language to show off your degree or whatever it is, difficult language, but to the house of Israel. In other words, they understand those words you're about to say. Nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them, Ezekiel, to the house of Israel, who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. And it's not because they don't understand the message. It's because they don't, they don't like it and they're going to turn away from God. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate i got to say, I've never been in a situation where I was in an entire congregation that was stubborn against God and obstinate, stuck in their ways. No, Lord, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to do what you have to say. Thank God. Can you imagine being in a congregation completely filled with people like that? That every time I brought forth the word of God, they're like, maybe even like they turn their backs and say, I'm I'm leaving. I'm not going to. We've had some people do that, but not everybody. All right. The whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Verse 8. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. In other words, Ezekiel is going to be just as stubborn and obstinate, holding to God's word, as they were rebelling against it. All right? That's sometimes what you have to be. You've experienced that, I'm sure, yourself, when you're speaking God's words, when you're giving the gospel, and then there's no response. And you have to stand your ground and tell them again, this is what the word of God says. You may not like it. You may not like hearing that you're a sinner. You might, might not like hearing there's nothing you can do about it. But that's the truth. All right. Sometimes we have to hold our ground. Verse 9, like emery harder than flint, I've made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Notice this, verse 10. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I speak to you, and listen closely. That's good advice for all of us, isn't it? Not just hear the words and walk away. And James would say, if you do that, it's like a man looking into a mirror and forgetting what it looks like when he goes away from the mirror. Don't do that with God's word. Take it into your heart. All my words. Every, every time you read the Bible, every time you hear the Word of God preached, take it all in. Put it all in your heart. You may not understand it. You may think that it, it contradicts something else. But that's, you know, that's the mind. It doesn't have all the information it needs. But I'll tell you what, your human spirit gets it. You, the Holy Spirit will put it together. You know, there's they're kind of building blocks, you know. When the Holy Spirit is building us up, the cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, the, the first floor is what was written by the prophets and the uh, apostles. And then from there it's built up. The truth of the gospel, truth of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. That's the foundation. It always, should always be the foundation. So that anyone who comes, anything that comes on top of that has to be seen in light of the things that have already come. The basics, we call them. That we simply believe and we're born again. That all believers have eternal life. All our sins have been forgiven. See, once we're built up with that, the other things that come, we have that we can stand them, if, I, if you put it that way, because we're standing on top of the rock. All right. He says, verse 10, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you, and listen closely. Do we do that? Do we listen closely to every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord? In other words, do we pay attention to it? Do we allow it to sink into our hearts? Do we allow it to have first place in our hearts today, even after we leave? We're continuing to meditate on it, think about it. How does this apply to my life? 
Lord, I want you to put this together with what I already know about you now. So they have a richer understanding of who you are. Verse 11, go to the exiles. See, see at the time, it's interesting. At the time that Ezekiel writes, at the time he's getting those words from the Lord, the house of Israel is in exile. They've already seen that an army came, wiped them out, and brought them into that foreign country. And still, they're stubborn and obstinate. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Maybe you can. I mean, today, what happens if next week a foreign army, all right, navy and all of that, wipes out the United States and brings us all to their country? And we have to listen to Chinese, and we don't understand a word that they're saying. Now, we understood that that was the Lord's hand, and we've seen, wait a minute, why would he do that? I think we'd be paying attention to every word that the prophet who could speak our language, that the pastor who could, with you, could speak English, all right? And hopefully our hearts would be turned back to the Lord. I mean, what else does he have to do? You know, I remember, most of you remember, maybe all of you remember, 9-11, you know, I don't know what your experience was, but that event shook me to the core. You mean, you mean they can get here? You mean they can blow up a building in the greatest city in the world? You mean they can attack the Pentagon, the, the, the seat of our military power? You know? And a lot of other people saw it too. And let me tell you, the churches were filled for a few weeks. <laughs> you see it? But when God moved against Israel, he just didn't knock down a building. He had a military that came in and knocked down all of the buildings, including the temple. And that still didn't get their attention. Mm, That's stubborn. That's obstinate. So so we have trouble today understanding why most of the Jewish people don't reject the gospel. Just realize, you know, and in a way, remember, they're still God's people. I mean, this is just like Saul of Tarsus that the Lord found a way to t- turn into Paul the Apostle. The Lord will have his way with his people that he loves, the nation of Israel. But look all along the way what had to happen to those people in order to soften their hearts, get them to turn back to the Lord. But again, the Son of Man, take into your heart all my words. The Lord spoke with words that Ezekiel and the house of Israel could understand which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. So God chose to reveal himself to us in words that we could understand. But here's something that's most profound of anything. He also gave us his very son to explain him. His very son. In other words, God took human form in order to communicate, to get things across, so that we could have another human being who was still God. Imagine. Think about it. Jesus Christ, still God, but now human, using language we can understand. Not only that, but actions that proved who he was. All of that. And the Bible says, I want you to turn to John 1.18 now, please. Go back to the New Testament, Gospel of John. If you ever witness to an unbeliever and they believe the Gospel... I think the next place you should point them to, besides the local assembly that's teaching the word, is the Gospel of John. Because the first thing they need to know is that Jesus Christ is God. God in the flesh. That's the purpose behind the Gospel of John. There's uh, selected miracles that are put in a certain order to show his deity, and so forth. In any event, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. In other words, God is spirit. However, the only begotten God, God in the flesh, who is now in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus Christ has explained who God is. God's Son, notice this, is the word of God. He he communicates to us in words that we can understand, and he has given us his Son who is the very word of God. Everything in God's word is is inside of him. And he showed that to us. So if you want to understand who God is, just look at who Jesus is. Again, God's son is the word of God. Just go back a few verses in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, back to the very beginning, back to verse 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. This is like the most profound thing when you think about it. In the beginning 
That was before anything existed. When, when there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In that beginning was the Word. The very beginning. God has His Word. Now, where is it? And the Word was with God. Okay, I can, I can sort of understand that. It's His Word, so of course it's with Him. And the Word was God. God identifies himself with his word. And not only that, the word was with God and the word was God. So in other words, picture it. The word is next to God, yet the word is God. Now how can that be? It can only be if there's more than one person in the Godhead. Does that make sense? I'm with somebody else, and yet he's God too. Two out of three, and then the Holy Spirit's in there too. God's Son is the Word of God. Now let's step back one more time so we understand the point. Since God revealed Himself in words of human understanding, and I want you to bring back into, into view the gift of tongues in Corinth in the first century and the preaching of the Word of God today, if God Himself revealed Himself in words of human understanding, how much more ought we to speak to the church words that have meaning for the congregation? Think about that. God revealed himself to us in words that we can understand. He revealed him to ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. How much more are we to speak words to one another that have meaning for the congregation? All right, verse 18 of chapter 14 of the book of 1 Corinthians. I said that backwards. 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 18. Remember, chapter 14 is taking the, the gift of tongues, talking about it, and putting it in its proper place by showing its limitations. Well, here we go. This does it better than probably any other passage in chapter 14. Look, he says, I thank God. Paul says, I thank God. I speak in tongues more than you all. Again, he's bringing himself into view. And we'll see this in a minute. But he's basically saying that I've got a greater deposit, a greater manifestation of speaking in tongues than anybody in the Corinthian church. That's what he says. However, in the church, when we're gathered together to worship, he says, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also. We're going to see about this. Five words rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. By the way, verse 19 shows us that the tongue has words. It's words, okay, but nobody can understand them without an interpreter. Again, I, I, sp- I thank God. I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church gathered together, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. You know, in other words, that's true today, this principle, even though the gift of tongues is no longer with us. But imagine if I had a series of experiences of the Spirit, and I just kind of brought them out with no connection, no thought at all. How would that build you up? You know, people do this all the time. People have, uh, they tell us they have dreams or visions or these kind of things. Well, don't listen to them if they have that, by the way. But in any event or an experience that the Lord has pointed out to them, three or four of them, and yet they're not put together in any understandable way, in understandable order. That's not teaching. That's not going to help. That's not going to build people up. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I would rather speak five words with my mind that I may instruct all this also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And again, here in verses 18 to 19, Paul gives himself as the role model. He says, look, I speak in tongues with a greater manifestation than any of you, and yet I would rather speak five words. I'm going to put aside the greatness of that gift so that I can teach you. I'm putting aside the privileges I have, Paul writes, in order to build up others. Now, that's a principle that still holds force today. That we may, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I like to sing. I'm not sure I do it well anymore, but I still like to. Okay? So if I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to show off. I'm going to say, I'm doing the song service today. You know? Well, that's maybe my privilege. I'm the pastor after all. But I better put that aside 
so that the people who have been called to be in the song service, you know, use their gift to do that, okay? Put aside your privileges, all right, in order to build up others. That's, that's, the, that's Christianity. If you want to know about Christianity in a nutshell, do you know what it is? It's God saying to us, I have forgiven you of all your sins. Now, go love one another. That's, the, that's what we're called to do. If you look at the epistles of the New Testament and you look at the instructions to the church, it's all about the others. One time, the, the founder of the Salvation Army, I believe his name was Booth, in any event, they invited him to this great Bible conference and all these scholars, and they're like, we want to hear from the guy who set up Salvation Army. So he came. He came, and he walked up to the pulpit, and he said this. Others. And he walked off. I'm sure that was a profound message. One word, by the way. Paul says five. Booth said one. Others. Other people. That's what Paul does. He did it over and over again. I'm just going to give you the passages. You can read them if you, want, if you like. But in chapter 4, we saw that. If you want, you can read verses 10 to 16 to see how Paul put aside his privileges in order to build up others. Paul went through so many things without food, ragged clothes, and so forth, beat up. Why? So he could serve others. He put aside his privileges as a Roman citizen. He put aside his privileges of being an apostle. All right? He could have said, look, I'm the apostle. You better protect me. But he didn't. He went through all of that so he could build other people up. Chapter 9, verses 12, and then 19 to 23. He's talking about how he puts aside his rights to be, basically to be financially supported by the church, but he puts it aside so that there'll be no obstacles to the, the gospel of the Lord. You see it? Put aside my privileges in order to serve others, to build them up. And again in chapter 10, whoops, again in chapter 10, verse 33 through 11, one, he's talking about, he's talking about the, this three chapters, remember, is about idolatry. And at the end, he sums it up basically by saying, listen, you know, I'm here to serve you. Think about one another. It's again and again and again we see this in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Okay, one more time. Verse 18, Paul writes, I speak in tongues more than you all. He speaks in tongues more than all of them. I want you to give you that word more, okay? You might wonder. Because it could be more anything, right? It could be more often. It could be more tongues. It could be with more power, all right? Well, the word means to a greater degree. To a greater degree. In other words, whatever it is, this, this, this is, is, is that to a greater degree. So in other words, they're speaking in tongues, okay? But then Paul speaks in tongues to a greater degree than any of them. And again, it could have meant that tongues, Paul spoke more often, but it's much more likely that what he's saying is that he's spoken more tongues than anybody else. And that would make sense. That's the more than you all. And yet, in verse 19, Paul tells us that he did not speak in tongues. He could speak more of them than anybody else, but he didn't do it at all when the saints gathered together for worship. So God revealed who he is in words that we can understand. And Paul knew that in the congregation gathered together, everything ought to be understandable to the body that's assembled. So he didn't speak in tongues. He could have, but he didn't. And yet he, he spoke in many tongues. And the question then becomes, well, if he didn't do it in the congregation, when did he do it? When did he speak in tongues? Where was he when he spoke in tongues? Why did he speak in tongues? I mean, these are all valid questions. Because we know when he didn't, right? When the congregation assembled. And that's also where. And we know that that, there was no purpose to him speaking in tongues in the congregation. He just told us that. So the question is, wait a minute though. You have that gift, Paul. When when did you use it? When are you using it? Where, Where? Where are you when you do it? What's the purpose? Why are you doing it? These are all good questions. Great questions. I'm not going to give you the answer today. I'm going to, I'll attempt to answer it next Sunday when we look at that verses 20 to 25 of this chapter. But I'll tell you, we've already seen part of the answer. We saw it in verses 2 to 4 
of this chapter. You can go back and see that. There's another fact I want to give you today and kind of warming up to this question. Do you realize that in the book of Acts, which records Paul's evangelistic ministry of preaching the gospel across the whole Roman Empire, that book never refers to Paul as speaking in tongues. In other words, the record of his evangelistic ministry across the Roman Empire, and yet Acts never says that he speaks in tongues. And in 1 Corinthians, he says he doesn't speak in tongues in the congregation, so you must ask, when did he? What was the purpose when he did? Because he certainly did, because he says he did it more than, to a greater degree than anybody else. So I want to plant that seed when you think about that. And just by the way, tongues are mentioned. You might say, well, you know, it wasn't an issue. They didn't, they didn't talk about tongues at all. Well, they did, not too much. Three times. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, we have the 12 led by Peter. Actually, it's more than that. They spoke in tongues. However, you know what? Their words were understood by everybody in attendance. Remember, tongues in the congregation understood by nobody in attendance. The tongues that were spoken by the, by the disciples of Pentecost were understood by everyone in the audience because it was miraculous that they were able to speak in the specific tongues of everybody gathered there. They were all Jews, but they were from many different places. They spoke different languages, and yet they all understood. By the way, that's a different gift than the gift we see in 1 Corinthians 14. That was an apostle's gift. This is different, just so you know. A lot of people say that, well, tongues is tongues, and what they spoke in in Corinth is the same as what they spoke in Acts chapter 2, and that's just not true. Then in Acts 10, we have the first uh, time that Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And then Cornelius and his family, those are the people that Peter went to, all right, took a lot of doing, he, he thought the Gentiles were lesser. They were not the ones that should be hearing. But he should think that way because Jesus told him that, by the way, when he was here. He told these people, go to the Jews only. Yet now he's telling Peter, go to the Gentiles as well. When, when that happened and, the, and those Gentiles, the family of Cornelius, believed in Christ, they immediately spoke in tongues. Why? Because you had a group of Jewish people there who didn't think that Gentiles could become believers And so in order to show that, the gift of of tongues was given. Oh, wait a minute. Wow. And then finally in chapter 19, we have a Jewish disciple of John the Baptist. When he heard the gospel of Christ, when he was baptized, not sure if that's the spirit or water, doesn't matter. Paul had laid his hands on him, and they spoke in tongues. About a dozen people. That's it. Those three times. Never by Paul himself. Never by anybody that, that came with Paul, Barnabas and so forth. They never, no record anyway of them speaking in tongues in the ministry of, of uh, preaching the gospel. Okay. Again, you can see it in print. There's no record of Paul preaching, preaching in tongues. Preaching in tongues. That certainly strongly indicates that he didn't use it to preach the gospel. Since there's no record of it. Okay. And yet it says, I speak in tongues to a greater degree than anybody else. So again, the question is, well, if it's not for his evangelistic ministry, then what is it for? We're going to see that next week. If you want to read ahead, verses 21 to 23 will give us the rest of the information we need to figure out the purpose of tongues for, the, for Paul and the Corinthian church at that time. All right. But verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, it basically says in church, In assembly, when we're assembled together, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that you may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So at this point, let's close with with another question. Oops. What can you say in five words? When you think about that. What can you say? It doesn't seem like many, right? In this day and age... You know, when we have, well, actually, we're going back to that with Twitter. I don't know how many words that max, but it's more than five. What can you say in five words? Think about it for a minute. Not a minute. About ten more seconds. Let me tell you something. If those are words from the Bible, from the Word of God, you can say plenty in five words. If you don't believe me, I'm going to close with a few of them today. How about our Lord and Savior? Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, I know that's six, but it's close. 
Think about that. What's all, think about all the information there about the Son of God made flesh. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah of the Jewish people. He's the Savior of the world. And He is Lord. Before anything was, He is. He is over everything. All of that packaged into six words. Or how about this one? In the Gospel of John, when he was talking to the Jews that were hostile to him, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Five words. Before Abraham was. They were talking about, they were proud of the fact that they were the descendants of Abraham. He says, listen, it's great to be that, but you'll have to know who I am. Before Abraham existed, I am. In other words, God. He's saying here that he's God. That's just five words. And you probably say, well, couldn't you just say Jesus is God? Yeah, but I want to use the words from the word of God. Here's another one in the the letter of 1 Corinthians now. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus the Messiah and him crucified. That that was just, Paul says that, you know, to the Jews, they just, they they were mystered. They They couldn't understand it, right? And to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. And yet there it is. God's Son, the Jewish Messiah, crucified. That's a message. That can be a life-changing message. It can be a life-changing message to the Jew as well as to the Greek. And then we have this. Christ died for our sins. He's crucified. He died. This is five words. Remember, Paul desires to speak five words in a language everybody understands with his mind. Here's five words. Christ died for our sins. That's a big part of the gospel. And also it says he died physically, right? He had a human body while remaining God, so he died. Why? For our sins. What does that mean? We are sinners. We could do nothing about it. God's Son had to become flesh and die for us. The innocent dying for the guilty. How about this? Raised because of our justification. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we can see in the word of God that God the Father raised him from the dead. And that was for our justification. In other words, because God justified us, Jesus was raised from the dead. So, you, so you, first of all, by the way, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested event in ancient times. Okay? So... You know, re- relax, we can sh- I can show you about uh, 15 ways that prove that he, re- he rose from the dead. Now you see that, then you understand why. That's the issue. Well, for our justification, that's just five words. Here's four words, making up for the six we started with. Faith, hope, love, abide. Think about that. Think of everything that's in there. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all the hopes that we have, especially for the rapture, the love which we are to have now, which will exist forever, because God is love. That's a mouthful. How about this? We will all be changed. In other words, the rapture will come. We will all be changed. These bodies of corruption will be exchanged for bodies of glory. That's a mouthful. All right, five words. And then how about this? He, Christ, is before all things. He's before everything is subject to him. He created it all. He was here before anything was created. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, for those who were gathered that weren't Christians, believe in the Lord Jesus. Five words. I desire to speak five words with my mind when the assembly gathers. Five words from God's word have more power and meaning than all of the world's books combined. You can go to the greatest library in the world, whatever that might be, You can go to the library that Google is putting together, along with everything else about us. You can go to Harvard Library. All of those books combined have less power and meaning than five words from God. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you today. We thank you that you do communicate to us in words that we can understand and that the word came down and was made flesh for us. So that while we've never seen God, we, we can see and, and from God's word who Jesus is. Father, today, we also ask that either by means of someone hearing this message or perhaps more likely someone who's heard the message preaching to the unbeliever the gospel, we would pray, Father, that you would give them understanding, 
That's the job of the Spirit. We pray, Father, that they would, they would know that, that they hear and believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins, was buried, and all our sins were in his body, so they were all buried with him, and then he was raised from the dead on the third day. Simply a matter of believing that, believing Christ, believing in Christ, believing in the power of God to raise Christ from the dead. He will be saved. Also, Father, we want to thank you again for all of that. Most importantly, for your son, Jesus Christ. That five words about him in the Bible can shout out so much meaning. And help us, Father, to carry that meaning in our hearts. So that again, as Paul did, as he told the Corinthians to do, that we use our mind to communicate what's in our hearts so that others may be blessed. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, we gather together on Thursdays for Bible study. It's informal. It's fun. People bring food. People try to stump me with questions. People, when they're like tired of concentrating, will, will like ask a curveball that's way out there. You know, you know, like kids at school. You know, they they find that what what the teacher's really interested in is hobby or whatever. Like Tom Birchberger, his hobby was trains. So imagine he's a teacher and you're in class and he's doing like trigonometry on the board and you're like, I've had it. So you say, hey, Mr. Merchberger, what train are you painting now? And he can't resist the question. That's, sometimes that happens in Bible study. In any event, come. It's really good. It does build everybody up. I'll tell you what, I prepare for that. I have a handout. But almost every week, somebody makes an insight about what we're teaching that adds to what we're looking at another passage, and so forth. So it's great. I totally encourage you to come. All right. Just a minute on our giving policy. We, um, as you know, we don't pass around baskets. We don't tithe, right? None of that is, is called for for the church, all right? Tithing was an Old Testament practice. It was the equivalent to a tax. You see, because Israel was a theocracy, all right? God ordained the means in which the tax would be collected. By the way, it was 10%. You know, that's not kind of interesting. I bet most of us pay more than that. But in any event, not for today. Today, what happens, what should happen, is that the, the church gathered together, okay, is edified and understands the importance of the preaching of God's word. And freely, when they can, when they have the resources, they give... Why? So that others may be built up. Okay? That's the purpose of it, just like other like preaching. And so we allow you, we allow you. We provide several ways you can do that. All right. We do have a box in the back. We're not going to pass it around. It's kind of heavy anyway. Well, we have the web. You can go on our website, and on the first page you'll see it's in small print. You kind of see it. But we have a lot of things on this. We have uh where's my can I turn it off? I don't know, it's not working. It's okay. Oh, there it is. Lyle's Bible Church, welcome, 50 things, who you are in Christ, our current series, a beautiful picture of a lighthouse. And then a really small print, you see it? Support this ministry. You miss it. You know, that just tells you that we don't want to like, blare it out like on every page. Like, there's some, I don't want to be critical, but there is some, some ministries that on every page they have something about how to give to them and why and all of that. But that's not the, that we shouldn't be doing that in this church, Okay. And then by, we have envelopes in the back if you'd rather do it by the old way, by putting money or a check in the... Um, I encourage you to write a check rather than put money in there. All right, especially depending on where you... Oh, never mind. We have people in other places whose uh, mail has been opened all right, and the money removed. All right, and then we get this envelope. You can tell it's been opened and there's this little note, but nothing else. They refer to a gift, but it's not in there anymore. Can you imagine? But anyway, we just... Uh, because the fact is that we do need, need money to keep this place going. We have some incredibly generous people who never make an issue about it, okay? But that's not right. What we're supposed to do is we're all supposed to support. All right, so keep that in mind. Not to pressure you, please don't misunderstand. But in your heart, understand what it is, the gift of giving, which some have, or all of us, how we ought to do it freely, as the Lord leads us. All right. All right. By the way, on Thursday nights, we have a prayer meeting afterwards. And I'm going to keep mentioning this 
because it's so important. Prayer is powerful. When the saints gather together and pray, it's especially powerful. So we ask you to please give us your prayer requests. You can give it to us on the internet, or you can give it to us by writing it down, and we have a box in the barrier that you can write the prayer requests on. We get some, but I want to have more. I just can't believe that there's people here that have nothing that you want us to pray for. I don't believe that, okay? Let us know. Please, don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed, all right? Take, leave the personal information out if you want to. There are many times when actually people give us more information, <laughs> and I, I edit because I don't want to expose something that's personal in any event. All right, let's close one more time. Father, we thank you for all of this that we've had the opportunity to share today, singing together, hearing God's word in one place, understanding the importance of not only hearing it, but also putting it in our hearts, having it in our hearts, and living accordingly. We thank you also, Father, for the generosity of, of many who provide us the money we need to go forward. We also ask, Father, today that there would be more of us, more people have the opportunity to hear the truth, we would ask that you would bring people to this, this congregation and join us. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Got any questions about what we, what we learned today or anything in the Bible that you'd like to ask? Okay. I will be here for a while. All right. So please don't be shy. Just, if you have something, just come on up and we'll, and we'll talk about it. All right. You're dismissed. Have a great day. Beautiful Rhode Island day today, huh? 50s. Yeah.